Thanks for listening to the New Life Church Searcy podcast. If you'd like to get connected to what God is doing at the Searcy campus, you can text the word Searcy to 88000. There you can give online, get connected to a life group, find your place in a serve team, and so much more. You can also find today's message notes in the YouVersion Bible app. Just tap the link in the episode description to follow along during the sermon and save notes directly to your phone. Now prepare your hearts to hear a great word from God today. I started a a very short series last week, and the purpose of the series was to just point us toward the work of of the cross and to use these three stories. I talked about Lazarus last week and uh, his ability to resurrect and bring forth things that we've presumed are gone. And um, I'm going to choose two more stories today and then next week, and then we'll we'll land well on, on Easter morning. But uh, the point of this little series is just to reveal the nature of Christ um, as he is preparing uh, to pay the ultimate sacrifice. And if you read the Gospels, you know, you'll see clearly that uh, they really were not grasping the magnitude of how this was going to look for them. Uh, they really didn't, didn't know, you know, is he really going to go, you know, pay a, a physical death? Uh, what does he mean by all this back in three days um, and, and, and so on? And so I believe he, his ministry is revealing these things, and he's trying to have conversations through deed that reveal the Father's heart. And so I want us to uh, continue that today, but I want to begin by referencing a sliver of church history And I would say that this sliver of church history, I would call the era of the marquee sign, okay? Now, um, if you drive through our community, you'll see a lot of churches with a lot of signs on the street, and those signs can be changed. You know, you can put up these catchy phrases, and they're meant to be attractive to the passerby, and uh, they can look at that and either be inspired or laugh a little bit. Or, or something like that. But this came about uh, starting in the 90s, early 90s. Every church was getting them, and they're very expensive. And so if, if you were a church and you had one in the 80s, you were a wealthy church. I mean, you had some money to have a marquee. And then the digital signs came out, and that, that was inspired by all the youth pastors like me who had been out changing those signs in freezing temperatures or in 110 degrees in the summer. Uh, my pastor used to come to me and say, why does the sign say Jesus wept? I'm like, because it's hot outside, and I just popped those two words up, okay? So it was a little, little bit of scripture, and everybody's great. But um, these churches, you know, would kind of compete, and so I want to just kind of share a few of these with you, and then I want to land on one of them particular that I'm going to build this message around today. But I've got pictures, so let's show it to you. We always use this one in the summertime, and we put up, you think it's hot here. Now, this is a a reference to uh, hell, you know, so it's like um, happy Monday, okay? There's a hell, and you might go there. Uh, So um, that's from uh, Church of God in Christ. And then we got this great one. Cremation is your last chance for a smoking hot body. Uh, y'all give it up for Knox Presbyterian Church there. I don't know where they, yeah. Uh, next, to air is human. Just let that stand there for a second. And to R is pirate. That's terrible. Okay. Um, grace community, without the bread of life, you are toast. Could do better than that. 
God loves you more than Kanye loves Kanye. That's probably one of my favorites. But this next one is my all-time favorite. Don't make me come down there, God. Okay, now this became popular, you know, just about a decade ago. We started talking out any phrase we wanted, and we'd put God on there, and it got like gave everybody permission to just say this is what God said, and this is what he's, he's thinking. And I remember when this one became so popular, you'd see it all over the place. But then, like, uh, we were on our way to Branson one time, and uh, a, a church had bought billboards all along the highway leading to Branson. And about every five or ten miles, you'd see this. Don't make me come down there, God. Don't make me come down there, God. Don't make me come down there, God. And I was like, man, by the time I get to Branson, I'm nauseous of what I might do. And, uh, you know, Shoji Tabuchi might get, you know, a little out of hand this year. But um, if we're honest, listen, this idea is possibly something that you've believed and attached yourself to your whole life. And this God is wanting to come down there mentality of, of, of punishment, and there's a, a couple of reasons why. So let me, let me just talk those out for just a second. The first one is that we live in the South, and in the South, there's a culture of discipline. Now, let me just show you what I, I mean by that. How many of you grew up, and you got a whooping? Okay, I'm, not, I'm talking about a spanking. You got a whooping. Okay, but yeah, I think they call it whooping because that's kind of the noise you make when you get one. You're like, woo Okay, so I don't, I'm, I don't know. But we got, we got whoopings growing up, so discipline was very, very common, and then we layer that with some confusion that, that we've absorbed in Scripture about how angry God is at us. And we said, well, God must be just like it was for me to grow up. Or just like the disciplined culture that I grew up in, that's exactly how my Heavenly Father is. Now, when I, when I think about discipline when I was a kid, uh, all kinds of things could transpire. Like my dad had a, had a belt that he liked to use, and his catchphrase was, don't make me take my belt off. And then you knew the next step, he was going to take it off, and somebody was going to get whooped. And then, but my grandparents also had the right and privilege bequeathed to them from my parents that they too could whoop me. And my grandmother loved to make you go pick a switch, okay? And it didn't matter what you picked. It could be the perfect willow switch or a little bitty twig. Whatever you brought back, you was getting beat with. So choose carefully. And then um, my mom used to spank me with a fly swatter until the pl I got too big and the plastic ones would break. So she got the wire ones, and that thing would look, you know, kind of all tangled up when she was done with it. And if you're a teenager and you're here today, you're not gonna, this is not going to be relevant to you. But it was very common in, when I was in school for principals, teachers, and coaches to paddle you um, for no reason, just because they wanted to. And they would have paddles, and they, they, were, they were custom paddles. So, like, you had paddles... And they were all shapes and sizes, and they would drill holes in them. 
Come on, y'all, right? To, to have less wind resistance. And then they would like airbrush their name on it and nickname it like Lightning. You know, they'd be like, you want to ride the Lightning? You know, I don't know. I had a teacher one time and she, had, she put a bicycle handle a grip, like a non-slip grip off her bike handlebar on it. I was like, my goodness, this thing's getting crazy. And then there was like no real protocol to it. You know, it's like, okay, bend down, touch your toes, two-handing it. You know, I mean like, like Babe Ruth style. And wham! You know, and it's like they, they hope to hit you on the backside, but sometimes they got a little high, hit you in the back. You know, oh, I'm sorry about that. Well, that's okay. I, you know, I didn't want to feel my left foot the rest of the day anyway. Um, you know, just the, the, the discipline of it growing up. It's like it was everywhere, and it was acceptable, and it was appropriate. And somehow we took that, and we said, we, we brought it in, and we said, this is what God is like. God's got a paddle. He's walking around the universe, swinging it. He's waiting on somebody to mess up so he can just, you know, give him the obey brew to handle. And so this resonates with us when we see this sign. Don't make me come down there. You know, like, oh, please, please don't. Stay. Stay in heaven. Stay on the throne. Stay wherever you are. Just don't come. Don't come here. And this was, this was a big thing, this, this one statement. And as much as we've tried to unlearn it, it's like as adults even, this remains a filter in our lives by which we pray, by which we read Scripture, by which we make choices. And so it's like you, you walk around in your Christianity and you've constantly got this lens of God's got a paddle. Don't make him come down here. Don't make him take his belt off. This discipline mentality. A.W. Tozer says that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I mean, think about that. What happens here, what comes into our minds when we think about God and we meditate on God, and we meditate on his word, whatever happens right there is one of the most important things because everything you do after that comes from that thought. And for some of you in the room today, your leading thought is don't make me come down there. And it's sad. Now, I want to ask you a question. I don't want you to raise your hand. I don't want you to laugh. I don't want you to look at me. I don't want you to give me any physical sign that you're responding. I just want you to answer in your heart and in your mind today. And the question is this. How many of you are here right now and you believe right now that God is more upset with you than he's in love with you? That that's how you look at your relationship with the Father is he's upset. And he's always upset because you're never doing good enough to get to where you want to go and where you believe. And you, the bar is so high and the expectations are so high that when you look at your own life, all you do is wring your hands and, and hope that things can somehow play out, that you can offset by your deeds and duty the things that you've done wrong. So I want you to go in your Bible or Bible app to John chapter 8, and we're going to read this story today and just extract some truth from it. And this is a story 
about being caught. And I, I, w- I would imagine there's no need for me to issue a rhetorical question here. There's no doubt in my mind that every person in here has been caught at some point in your life doing something. And you've got nothing to say. You can try to lie your way out of it. You can try to to change your behavior suddenly to indicate that, no, what you saw or what you heard, you did not see or hear. But the truth of the matter is you're caught. And it's a sickening feeling. And this story is about a woman who gets caught, has no ground to stand on, has no friend in, in the fight with her. It's just her and the the hard truth that she got caught. So I want to read this little little story, John 8, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus returns to the Mount of Olives, and early the next morning he's at the temple again. And a crowd gathers, and so he sits down to teach them. And as he's speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Now, I want to pause because that's very important. This is not something that happened a week ago. This is not two weeks ago. This is not gossip. She was caught in the act. It's embarrassing. It is shameful. There's no explanation. She was caught. And they put her in front of the crowd. This means the one that Jesus is teaching. They bring her up front. They steal the attention away from his teaching to have him deal with this. Verse 4, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down. He wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And he stooped down again, he wrote in the dust, and the accusers heard this. They slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Now, there's a lot here, but we're going we're gonna to break this down and just very good pieces today, but verse 3, let's clear the air a little bit. This group of Pharisees is a group of intellectuals. They are well-trained. They're the smartest people, so to speak, in this community. They're, they're, they're driven by doctrine, Mosaic law. They pride themselves on the embarrassment of other people, at least that's their reputation. And Jesus was kind to almost every group while he was here except these cats. So he told them over and over and over again, you know, you guys are like uh, snakes in the grass. I mean, he just told them, like, you are here to just tear this community up and act like you're doing it in the name of God. And so they they are known for self-righteousness and proclaiming that. They're known for being prideful, for being hypocritical, and for being legalistic, also known as how a lot of you were raised. So this is a very tough group. They're out to trick him. And in verse 5, when they said the law of Moses says that she should be stoned. Well, the law of Moses, to be clear, says both people should, should be stoned. 
but this man is not present. Where's he at? Verse 6, the truth is, they don't care about this woman. They don't care about the man. They don't care about the adultery. This is a trap for Jesus. Because if he says, yes, stone her, then his reputation for grace is destroyed. If he says, let her go, it looks like he's condoning adultery. And if he does nothing, then his reputation as a wise teacher is conflicted. Like we brought you a situation, and you couldn't even tell us what to do with it. You're not a teacher. So the way that Jesus responds can teach us a lot about God's heart. So let's talk out some notes from this story. The first thing I want to talk about and unpack today is Jesus wants religion away from your life. Now, this is going to sound crass at first, so just stay, stay in tune with me so I don't misrepresent. Religion is something that, you know, you may say, no, wait a minute, I, th- I thought that's what God wanted was religion. I, th- I thought he wanted us to uh, do this. Now, you, you can frame out religion if you teach it the right way. Sure, you can frame it in a, in a healthy way. But what we're seeing today is unhealthy religion at its best. And religion is more like a vehicle. It's something that gets you from point A to B. It's why we have so many denominations in town. It's why we have so many, many, many doctrines and theories of thought. Is because people are choosing a vehicle. So they're saying, I think this is the way I believe I'm going to get in that vehicle. And some people stay in that vehicle a lifetime. Statistically, more people are leaving um, the denomination they were raised in and jumping into a different one. And so occasionally people are like, you know, I've been driving in this for five years. I'm going to get out and try another one. And so they change the vehicle by which Christ is taught or preached or engaged. And all the things that house that, again, the imagery of, of a vehicle changes with it. So you've got some religions who are great at doing one thing, and you can tell it when you get in that that vehicle. You get out, you get into another one, and where that one was weak, this one might, might be strong. And so you've got all these different ways of just expressing faith, and all those things can be religious. But religion is man's attempt to reach God. But Christ is God's attempt to reach man. So it's very important that as we're going after God, we use Christ to get there. Christ even has to tell people, I am the way. I am the truth. It's me. It's not religion. It's not doing certain things. It's not a rule book. It's me. I am the way. And no one gets to the Father except through me. It was one of his best teachings. Religion is also, like this sign proved earlier, is based on fear. Christ is motivated by love. Okay, now I want to make a very strong point here. Guys, I want you to imagine you going to your spouse And you're saying, listen, you're saying all the right things, right? You're like, hey, I need to communicate to you. I may not be the best at this, but I'm going to give it a shot. I love you. I want to be with you the rest of my life. I want to provide well. I'm going to work hard. I'm never going to lie to you. Maybe you give her some roses. Maybe you unpack a bunch of diamonds. Maybe you just fill the living room with Pottery Barn. You're doing all the things, and you say, I love you, but... 
If you don't love me back, I'm going to catch you on fire. This is how religion has framed God out. He loves you. He died for you. But he will burn you eternally. And when it did, it created entire generations of people who said, oh, okay, then, well, if that's my only choice, you know, I mean, if, if you've got all the power and you've got all the authority and you're the, you're the strongest entity in, in my known world and you say that you're going to burn me if I don't love you, well, then I love you. That's easy. And so you've got this entire group of people who are like, okay, now because of that, because of, of the, the, this eternal piece of, of fire and torment and torture if I don't love you, then I'm going to spend my whole life striving and wringing my hands and being religious and trying to do all the right things because that's not how I want to end up. And the fact of truly, deeply loving the Father is second to burning eternally. That becomes the motivating force. And that is what religion does. And so it motivates us by fear rather than by relationship. Religion is focused on what you do. Christ is focused on what he did because you couldn't get it done. So loving him is saying, hey, listen, I know. I know I didn't do it. I know I didn't do well. I've tried, and I'm exhausted by it. So the only thing I know to do is to surrender my life to Christ. Your transformative power lives in me. Even when I do good, it's not my own good. It's the good in you that produces the good in me. If I do anything good, it's because you're in me. This don't make me come down there is so destructive because it, if you cling to it, it erases all of the, the love, the grace, the I'm in you, I'm with you, I'm never going to leave, I'm never going to forsake, I'm going to provide, I've got promises for It erases all that when we go, don't make him come down here, okay, please. Don't, don't make him get involved. It minimizes our God to being something like the Greek gods. It's like we're waiting on Zeus to pop down and destroy a hillside full of people. And so we've gotten confused here. Jesus and the religious people had the same goal in mind. They both wanted her to sin no more. But the Pharisees wanted to kill her. Jesus' plan was to forgive her. We have to be careful that we don't adopt the same religious attitude. Sometimes as Christians, we get good at being good, and we think everyone else should be good like we are good. And in reality, the Bible says no one is good. If you need a reminder on that, it's Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not a single person in here who's not been caught. So here's how we know that we're being religious. Let me cover this quickly. Some of these sting a little bit. The first one would, would, would be this. It's when you judge people who sin differently than you sin. Okay? It's like, yeah, I sin, but not like that. 
I think in a way, this is why we are in love with the voyeurism that social media gives us. The ability to peek into each other's life and quickly do a comparison and go, at least I'm not doing that. And somehow we feel justified. We feel better. I mean, I might have, you know, this going on, but look at that. I mean, you even got pictures to prove it, posts to prove it, their own words to prove it. And you go, man, I I feel great about myself now that I've been on here. We say, you know, that's a bad sin. Well, I only sin the good sins. I, I only sin the sins that nobody knows about, but their sins are so public. That makes them awful. They are shameful to their family. At least I don't do that. We judge ourselves by our actions, but we judge other people by their intention. The second thing is we're being religious when we try to fix people. Again, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but have you ever tried to fix somebody? That can be exhausting too. You ever tried to fix a person? Fix a situation that's out of your... Our job is not to to fix, it's to love people. Billy Graham talked about this later on in his ministry, and he talked about how he wished he would have caught on to this sooner, that his, his primary goal was just to love people. Let God judge and you love. I went to a marriage conference one, one weekend, a little short conference. Robbie was with me, of course, because you, it's weird to go alone to a marriage conference. And it was really good. And Robbie's chief complaint to me at that marriage conference was that I tried to fix her. Now, here's my confession. Most men are fixers. Some fix air conditioners. Some fix transmissions. I fix Robbie's attitude. That's how it works. Okay? We're tempted to fix. If I I can just get my hand on it. Okay, that's what religion does is if I can get involved in this, then it's going to be, be better. And Christ is saying, I'm the only one that has transformative power for you or anybody else. You should not be afraid of me coming down there. If anything, you should be praying that I come closer. It's very, very difficult to try and fix people, and it's very, very religious to do that. Third, It's when you focus on what you know instead of how you live. There's a lot of knowledge in today's church. It's just like in today's world. You can Google anything you want to know. You can watch YouTube videos all day long about theology and doctrine of all sorts and kinds and different backgrounds and different angles. You can watch that stuff all day long if you want to. We know a lot about the Bible, more than we've ever known. But we all know people who know a lot, and we don't even like them. And we don't most of the time because there's a conflict between what they know and what they do. And Jesus' brother, when he wrote his letter, just five little chapters in James, he, he says, listen, you, you got to be a doer of the word. You just can't be a, a, somebody who listens. You can't be a hearer. you got to be a doer. It's always been a, a problem of going, oh, I've got it, I've got it, I've got it here. But we struggle to flesh it out because we're being religious. We think, if I just know a lot, if I just know a certain scripture, 
and I, I say this every time I talk about this, and it sounds really crass, but there are atheists who know the scriptures better than a lot of us in this room. But that doesn't make them believers. Just to know something doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. So when you focus on just what you know instead of what you live, you're being religious. When you value the rules over relationship, you're being religious. Now, this woman that we've read about has broken one of the rules. It's one that even in our modern culture today, we, we would say, it wasn't right. You hurt people. You embarrassed yourself. We could talk it out. If you were her husband, you'd say, listen, man, this is bad. I don't know if I can stay with you. I don't know if I can trust you. I don't know if we can move forward. What happened? When did this happen? I didn't even know this was going on. All of these things can, this is a very real circumstance to us. She had broken a rule. And there was a lot of rules in the Old Testament, guys. 600 of them and plus. Some of these you could handle. Okay, I'm, I'm going to read just a few of them. Uh, Leviticus, chapter 11. Leviticus is our favorite book of the Bible. Do not eat a weasel, a rat, or a lizard. Check. That's easy. Done. Okay? You've only got 599 more to do. Do not burn honey on, on the altar. Check. No honey on the altar. Do not withhold food or clothing from your wife. Check, check. Do not have relations with your mom, sister, aunt, or animals. Check, check, checkity, check, check. Okay, done. And then the rules start getting really practical. Men, do not shave your beards. No tattoos, it says. Then he goes, don't gossip, don't hold a grudge, don't take revenge, respect your father and mother. And this mosaic law started to, to develop rule after rule after rule, and then the rules would separate and become part A and part B, and so on and so on and so on. And I believe in Romans is going to teach us later that this was basically him saying, listen, you asked for it. You asked for kingship. You asked to be governed. You asked to be organized. You wanted all this. I gave it to you, and you can't do it. This is why they were so excited that there was going to be a Savior, someone who could come on the scene and actually break the back of this thing that it wasn't just going to be another year of doing the same thing over and over and over and just hoping that my life gets better and hoping that I can know God and hoping that I can have more access. But there would be a Savior, an Emmanuel, God with us. That's the complete opposite of don't make me come down there. The law in the Old Testament actually prepared our hearts to receive a Savior. How so? Because mankind, including you and including me, at some point became exhausted with the 600 rules. So Jesus wants religion away from your life. Why? So that grace can be in the middle of it. Do you know I was in my 30s before I heard a great message about grace? 
Everything was about rules. Everything was how I needed to try harder and do better and be better and strive and strive. And, man, I found myself, I didn't know it, but I was spiritually anxious. I'd come to church and I'd be like, man, I didn't, you know, I didn't really even feel the presence of God today. That must mean that I'm doing something wrong. I joke about this kind of every time I tell you this, but I remember growing up, every, every, every consequence in your life became God was after you about something. Like, you could get the common flu. That's the Lord. He's trying to get your attention. You're sick because you did something wrong. This is very serious. You better ask for, for forgiveness. Well, what I do? I don't know. It's between you and the Lord. I remember once it got so silly that this person had a flat tire. And another person said to them, that's the Lord. He flattened your tire to get your attention. I'm like, is that really what it's come to? That Jesus snuck down out of heaven with a shiv and slashed my Goodyear radial because I did something. Because that, that's what he does. That's what the angels do at night. They sneak into your home. That missing shirt that you can't find, angel, he's got it. All those things that go wrong every day, those little minute things, angels. Like Dennis the Menace, running around, causing a stink. Why? Because you did something. And before I knew it, man, I'd just be, I mean, sweating bullets every day. Eternal damn, damnation, fire, uh, oh my gosh, weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth, flat tires, something's wrong. Oh, I got a cough. It must be the Holy Spirit trying to make me sick. And then you turn around and you realize how silly the religious vehicle has become for you because it has led this entire time with, don't make me come down there. So I want to free you up because some of you are stiff-arming a God that you have made up here, but it does not really exist. We know there are consequences for sin, yes, but God is looking at you through the eyes of grace. When you are caught, you are caught by grace. I'm going to read a strong scripture here, and then I'll land quickly. Ephesians 2, verse 8, he says, God saved you by what? Come on, say it again. By, by what? His grace. Not by your deed. Not because you did something. Not because you prayed a right prayer. Not because you, you did the right things. Not because you took all 600 uh, laws and, and, you, and you memorized them. No. By his grace, he saved you when you believed on him. And then he goes further to go against this statement. And you can't take credit for it, he says. It's a gift. You can't look at each other and go, yeah, I'm more holy and I'm more righteous and I'm better than you. He said, listen, this is the way it's set up. It's a gift. It's grace. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. He says, salvation is not a reward for the good things you've done, so none of us can boast about it. God does not give you what you deserve. So what did Jesus see when he looked into the eyes of this woman? Did he see a promiscuous woman, a woman whose life was over, someone he was disappointed in? You know what he saw? He saw his daughter. 
and he was moved with compassion for her. Love led this conversation. Not rules, not law. Love. And it's important that we understand why this passage of Scripture is even in the Bible. It's so we understand God's heart for us when we are caught. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to end with just this strong statement here, okay? If you do not understand grace, like if you have no concept of it, it's highly probable that you don't understand God either because you can't separate them. Grace and God cannot be removed from each other. If you want to know more about God, learn more about grace. Romans 5.8, again, this is pointing us toward two weeks from now, says, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, still, still sinners, Christ died for us. When you were caught in the act, he died for you. It's very hard for us to wrap our brains around because we, it's very, very difficult to think this out rationally, that this could even be done, that this kind of love even exists, but it does.